Hello, and welcome to Decolonizing Africa, a podcast exploring the historical revolutions, movements, and setbacks on the road to the lasting decolonization of Africa. This is episode 1.0, The Horrors of the Congo Free State. Hello to everyone, a very warm welcome to you. This is the very first episode of this new series on African history. My name is Marco, I am your host for the series. Let me tell you three facts about me so you don't feel like you are listening to a complete stranger. Firstly, I recently graduated from my master's degree in global and colonial history, so I am wholly qualified to say anything backed by solid evidence about African history. That's a joke. Secondly, this is the second podcast I have produced and hosted. So wish me good luck and farewell. Finally, I have three older brothers living around Europe. If any of them are listening, just so they know, mom and dad love me the most. Before we jump right into the topic of this first episode, let me say just a few words about the intentions behind this podcast and its format. I am planning on releasing this podcast bi-weekly, that is, once every two weeks. Each episode will last approximately half an hour, so definitely something you can find time to listen to whilst you're driving to work, doing the dishes, working out, or taking a walk. The podcast will operate in series, or seasons, with each series focusing on one big event in the history of Africa's decolonization. The goal will be not only to provide a coherent and understandable narrative of what happened, but to identify common themes across the liberation movements that swept over Africa in the second half of the 20th century, as well as to explore their causes and effects. The decolonization of Africa, unfortunately, is not at all a coherent, easily digestible series of events. It would be hard for even the most well-versed African historian to capture the developments taking place in Africa under one overarching concept or trend. To delve into these events, we need to collectively accept a few things. First, I will have to leave some things out for the sake of clarity and not to be stuck on the same event after 157 episodes. Also, things may get confusing sometimes. That's okay. History is confusing, and the extraordinary amount of information that comes with looking at modern history, where sources and narratives abound, implies a level of intricacy that will make heads buzz at times. I promise to do my best to not nerd out too much over small details and maintain the overall chronology and narrative as clear as possible. If you do get confused along the way, or have any questions or suggestions, don't hesitate to message me. My contact info will be in the description of each episode. Having said all that, it is now time to introduce the topic of this first season of Decolonizing Africa, the Congo Crisis. The Congo Crisis took place in the modern-day Democratic Republic of the Congo between 1960 and 1965. It's one of the most layered crises of its times, as well as one of the most studied and written about. So I'm definitely starting off easy. I do not know yet how many episodes exactly it will take to go through the entire crisis, but I am hoping to be done in about 30 episodes. 
No promises though. It may take a while, but I really want to give myself time to remain nuanced and detailed on certain topics because you'll see it will be necessary. Finally, this episode acts as a preamble to the Congo crisis, because I found it impossible to delve into the Congo crisis without dedicating at least one episode to the events of the late 19th century, during King Leopold's rule of the Congo. So that's it. Thank you for tagging along this new journey of mine. Without further to say, let's jump into the horrific rule of King Leopold II over the Congo Free State. By 1885, the scramble for Africa was in full swing. European powers were keenly fighting over the economic and political opportunities offered by the colonization of the African continent. France, Great Britain, Germany, Belgium, the Netherlands, Spain, Portugal and more all eyed the African regions yet to be colonized hungrily. The rivalries between European nations spurred the scramble forward and by 1884 it was clear that European leaders needed to come to diplomatic terms and formalize the division of Africa. The Berlin Conference represents the time and place where this formal division happened and is often recognized as the starting point of the scramble for Africa, historically speaking. However, it is important to remember that the scramble was already well underway by the time the Berlin Conference came around. All the conference did was offer legitimacy and ceremony to the imperial quest of European powers. No small thing, that's for sure, but the exploitation of the African people and plundering of the African resources had already moved forward. The Berlin Conference was officially hosted, of course, in Germany by Chancellor Otto von Bismarck, known as the Iron Chancellor due to his staunch Realpolitik. Apologies for my German. In 1884, the German Chancellor called on representatives of 13 nations in Europe, as well as the United States, to take part in the Berlin Conference, where they would attempt to work out a joint imperial policy on the African continent. Important to remember, and easy to forget, is the fact that no African representative was present at the conference, despite the central topic of discussion being the political and economic destiny of Africa and its people. Amongst the most important attendees of this conference were France, Italy, Portugal, and of course, Belgium. Belgium was a constitutional monarchy led by King Leopold II, who had held power since 1865. King Leopold was an ardent believer in the imperialist ideology of the late 19th century. More importantly, Leopold saw overseas colonies as the means to make the little Belgium into a greatly significant international power. Leopold funded the explorations of Henry Morton Stanley in the Congo Basin in the early 1870s, which helped chart the last terra incognita from European maps of the continent, which cleared the way for full-blown occupation of the continent. What was now geographically known could be politically occupied and economically exploited. In 1879, King Leopold founded the International Association of the Congo to further the occupation and exploitation of the Congo Basin. The association remained the face of Leopold's aspirations before, during and after the Berlin Conference, offering a facade to Leopold to do with the region as he saw fit. Before and during the Berlin Conference, Leopold worked hard to convince his fellow European statesmen that it was in their interest, as much as his own, to let him rule over the large area of the Congo. 
Leopold argued that he would embark on a humanitarian mission to help the Congolese people become more civilized and pledged to focus on the economic development of the Congo. Perhaps what appealed more to European states was the promise to maintain tax-free trade in the Congo, facilitating the exploitation of African resources by foreign companies and the trade of resources across oceans for the mutual benefit of King Leopold and his fellow European leaders. The Berlin Conference embodied the imperialist motivations of the European powers' involvement in the African continent. Through all the talk of civilization, economic development and the abolition of the slave trade, Europeans saw Africa as the wonderful opportunity to boost their economic growth and bolster their political magnitude. Intercontinental rivalry and expansionism pushed each European state to implement more aggressive imperial policies. As the Berlin Conference concluded in February 1885, the first act of the scramble for Africa, informal imperialism, was swept off the main stage and replaced by the colonial era. The occupation and exploitation of the colonies was now an official and legitimate practice. The conference itself ended with the signing of the General Act of Berlin. The act, amongst other things, officially recognized the territories occupied by King Leopold's International Association of the Congo as the property of the association. On August 1st, 1885, a few months after the end of the Berlin Conference, the association changed its name to the Congo Free State. On the same day, King Leopold II was announced as the ruler of the new state. King Leopold's direct ownership of the Congo Free State was never discussed at the Berlin Conference. These subtle but fundamental changes turned the huge Congolese region into the private property of King Leopold II, and the Congo Free State was, from then on, an absolute monarchy. Like many European colonizers, King Leopold equated his mission in the Congo with the end of the African slave trade and the establishment of free trade in the colony. However, the civilizing mission of King Leopold rarely amounted to anything more than vague promises. On the other hand, the Congo Free State, firmly steered by King Leopold's hold, let in companies to extract ivory, rubber and minerals in the Congo Basin. A military force was set up by King Leopold, named the Force Publique, or Public Force. The Force Publique consisted mostly of black soldiers, but only Europeans held officer ranks. Although Leopold kept a close eye on his highly prized colony, the king's control of the region was inconsistent and patchy. By 1900, only 3,000 Europeans lived in the Congo. This meant that only small portions of the huge colony could be monitored at the time, and the Force Publique relied heavily on friendly militias to oversee the outermost areas of the Congo. The erratic management of the Congo Free State certainly facilitated the horrors that have rendered King Leopold's name infamous in history. So what are the atrocities that make the Congo Free State such an unspeakable horror? Well, I won't go into too much gory detail, to spare your stomach, and also because I, we don't have the time to fairly reconstruct the gruesome scenes that took place in the 20 years of King Leopold's rule of the Congo Free State. If you do want to dive into an in-depth historical account of what happened in the Congo in that period, I direct you to the book King Leopold's Ghost. The book is a harrowing tale of Leopold's rule of the Congo and the atrocities that characterized it. If you can stomach what's to come in the episode and want to learn more, go read that. I myself will, however, offer just a few key examples, as macabre as they may be, to help you understand the legacy that haunted the Congo 
as it headed towards independence in 1960. As I stated before, one of the primary goals of the Congo Free State was to extract as many natural resources as possible to maximize income influx in the European market. The profit-driven focus of the colony was combined with the lack of a government enforcing laws and ensuring the rights of citizens were not systematically violated, generating a cycle of stomach-churning cruelty. The extraction of rubber, which generated the majority of the Free State's revenue, led to mass forced labor, torture and murder across the Congo. The companies managing the materials extraction, driven by market competition and greed, set quotas that were sometimes widely disproportionate to the amount of workers operating in a certain area. Failure to meet the rubber collection quotas became punishable by death. Since the rubber quotas were so wildly unrealistic at times, some Congolese people were simply doomed to die once this system was in place. Eventually, the Fosbrik were required to provide the hand of their victims to their officers as proof when they had shot and killed someone. This was enforced because Belgian officers were worried that the soldiers might otherwise use the bullets they had to hunt instead. As bullets were an expensive import from Europe, the priority of their use was to kill unreliable workers, not hunting game in the rainforest. In some instances, a soldier might shorten his service term by bringing more hands to their officers than other soldiers. According to certain historians, this led to widespread mutilations and dismemberment of the Congolese people. King Leopold personally disliked the dismemberments, but not for the reason you may hope. The king is quoted as saying, Cut off hands, that's idiotic. I'd cut off all the rest of them, but not hands. That's the one thing I need in the Congo. Although historians still debate about the estimates, the brutalities exacted during the Congo Free State caused the lives of millions of Congolese people with some setting the number of casualties as high as 15 to 20 million. Estimates of how common these practices were, and how high the number of casualties was, are difficult to get completely right, but partially they are beyond the point. Quoting directly from the article More Than Red Rubber and Figures Alone by Jan Bart Hvald, he said, In the end, it has to be borne in mind that it is not so much the number of people killed, either directly or indirectly, that is of the greatest importance. Instead, it must be recognized that a crime of tremendous proportion was committed. Allowing the discussion to degenerate into a meaningless to and fro of numbers is to sidestep the issue and to deny the humanity of those. Having listened to these appalling stories, you may wonder, did nobody care? Didn't liberals, socialists, or just, you know, decent people in the international community tried to stop these massacres from happening and to overthrow King Leopold? The answer is that some did, and eventually they won. But it was a painfully slow process. In 1890, five years after King Leopold took over the Congo, George Washington Williams, an African-American writer and journalist, visited the Congo Free State. He had previously conducted an interview with King Leopold and had been left vastly impressed. But, upon his trip to the Congo, he was not left in awe, but horrified by what he found. The rumors of harsh violations of the rights of Congolese workers, including mutilations and murders, were true. Williams, shocked at the contrast between Leopold's words and what he saw in his free state, wrote the king an open letter from Stanley Falls, nowadays known as Boyoma Falls, 
denouncing the inhuman actions of the Force Publique and the international companies overseeing the extraction of rubber in the Congo. Williams did not hold back his tongue, stating that King Leopold was as guilty as the perpetrators of the crimes, since they all were acting in his name. Williams went on to state, All the crimes perpetrated in the Congo have been done in your name, and you must answer at the bar of public sentiment for the misgovernment of a people, whose lives and fortunes were entrusted to you by the Conference of Berlin. I now appeal to the powers which committed this infant state to your majesty's charge, and to the great states which gave it international being, and whose majestic law you have scorned and trampled upon to call and create an international commission to investigate the charges herein preferred in the name of humanity, commerce, constitutional government, and Christian civilization. The letter of George Washington Williams helped with the popularization of the phrase crimes against humanity, and through it, Williams planted a seed of international dissent towards Leopold's rule. It took a while for that seed of dissent to grow. It was only at the beginning of the 20th century that other voices began picking up the criticism of the Congo Free State and the demand to remove the state from the hands of Leopold II. The publication of Joseph Conrad's novella Heart of Darkness brought the injustice of King Leopold's rule under further public scrutiny. However, it was not Conrad but Edmund Dene Morel, a British journalist and author, who headed the movement pressuring Belgium to take over the colony from King Leopold. That's right, although activists did not want Leopold to control the colony anymore, most of them saw the Belgian solution, as it became known, as the best solution to the Congo question. Morel's campaign was carried out primarily through the press in what turned out to be a propaganda war between King Leopold and his supporters and Morel's humanitarian efforts. The international pressure led Great Britain to eventually launch an official investigation in the matter in 1903, 18 years after the establishment of the Congo Free State and 13 years after George Washington Williams denounced the crimes of King Leopold's rule in his open letter. Roger Casement, the British consul at Boma, a port town at the mouth of the Congo River, was nominated the primary investigator in the matter, and in 1904 the British consul published the Casement Report which confirmed Morel's accusations and helped with swaying public opinion on the Free State's legitimacy. Throughout the course of his investigation, Roger Casement established a friendship with Morel and encouraged him to establish an organization to effectively mobilize against King Leopold's rule of the Congo. In 1906, Morel founded the Congo Reform Association. Its members included Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, Mark Twain, Joseph Conrad, Booker T. Washington, Bertrand Russell, and many more. Following the publication of the Casement Report and facing continued pressure by the Congo Reform Association, King Leopold was forced to set up an independent commission of inquiry. And, somewhat reluctantly, the Belgian Parliament finally voted for the annexation of the Congo as a Belgian colony in 1908. King Leopold died shortly after, in December 1909. He was King of Belgium for 44 years, and ruled over the Congo Free State for 23 bloody years. Before transferring the Free State over to the Belgian government, King Leopold had all the evidence of his activities in the Congo Free State in his possession destroyed. The destruction of this vital information created gaps in the history of the Congo Free State that may never be filled. A few things need to be noted before moving on. 
It's true, the Congo Reform Association played a crucial role in ending one of the most brutal colonial states in history. However, the brutality of colonial rule was merely mitigated through the Belgian takeover of the Congo. Many of the atrocities continued for decades into Belgian rule. Men like Edmund Morel and Joseph Conrad never envisioned an independent Congo, free from European colonial rule. The belief that Africans were whole and civilized as they were was hard to conceive in such an aggressively imperial period. Essential to imperialist ideology is the belief that the colonization of another territory is enacted not just for the economic and political advantage of the colonizers, but also as a moral duty towards the poor, uncivilized colonized. Shedding this belief would take many decades, and even people who cared about the well-being and just treatment of the African people remained, at this point, in the colonial mindset. Also, the annexation of the Congo Free State by the Belgians may not be interpreted as an altruistic act, but as a calculated decision. Some of those piling pressure on the Belgians to take over the Congo from King Leopold eyed the untapped mining sector of the country. The mining sector of the Congo would become one of the greatest assets of the colony and would play a key role in the struggle for Congolese independence, as we will see in later episodes. Once annexed by Belgium, the Congo Free State was renamed the Belgian Congo and the first phase of the Congo's colonization came to an end. However, its dark legacy still hovers over the Congo today, and crucial questions remain hard to answer. King Leopold II is nowadays a controversial figure in Belgium, yet continues to be celebrated as a king, a rightful and glorious king along with all the other kings. Having grown up in Brussels myself, I must admit that walking around and seeing the many statues of Leopold II in the city feels wrong. The presence of the statues and of Leopold II as an indisputable figure in Belgian history raises debates surrounding historical revisionism and nationalism. Leopold was not necessarily a bloodthirsty tyrant by intention. However, his policies and the regime established in his private property, the Congo Free State, certainly appear to point in that direction. The atrocities committed between 1885 and 1908 have been dubbed by some as genocidal. The numbers are surely large enough to justify such a view. Whether or not the intentions of the Belgian king was to exterminate the Congolese people is unclear. What is clear, however, is that King Leopold did not care enough about the Congolese people to move more than a finger to protect them. After all, the Congo Free State was the king's personal property and he was its absolute ruler. No government or bodies stood in his way. As George Washington Williams stated, if wrongdoings were being systematically carried out in the Congo, the king was to be held personally responsible. The rubber economy of the Congo Free State was based on the forced labour of millions of Congolese people. Since one of Leopold's boldest promises in his takeover of the colony was the abolition of slavery in Africa, what exactly was the difference between forced labour and slavery? You may say the difference was ownership, a slave was literally owned by his master, to do with as they saw fit. A forced labourer had no official owner. In practice though, the forced labourers of the Congo Free State were perhaps granted as little freedom as African slaves a hundred years before. The change to domination did not signify a change in the concern for African people's emancipation. So, call them slaves or not, Europeans were still exploiting and enslaving the Africans. The exploitation of Africans continued well into the 20th century, 
This heavy legacy dictated the direction of the nationalist movements of the 1950s and 60s when the Congolese people began demanding independence. Next episode, we'll jump 50 years ahead to the first chapter of the final act of the Belgian Congo, which culminated with Congolese independence and was heralded by the largest national party of the nation, the Mouvement National Congolais, led by Patrice Lumumba. <laughs>